This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Knight's Black Archaics. Jasper Maskelin. Crowdfunding Collapses. And Nikola Tesla's Basement. Before we get started on the podcast proper, we will begin a podcast virtual bit of preamble hut. And uh, this week uh, we have a bit of outstanding business. Uh, first of all, I thought I'd let people know that we are looking for additional advertisers for the show. Our current sponsors pay for the engineering and the hosting and everything. But in order for Ken and I to keep doing this, we need to not be losing money, at least uh, compared to the amount of time we spend writing. And we're looking at advertising as a way of doing that. So if you're interested in advertising on the show, either as an anchor sponsor or with a spot, look on the site. We'll have a rate sheet up by the time this podcast drops, and we would like to welcome you to the Ken and Robin Fold. Item of business number two, it has come to my attention that I did not apparently ask enough questions about Nazi UFOs during our recent Elliptony Hut segment. I guess perhaps I was thinking that a Nazi UFO was a flying saucer with a swastika on the outside and Nazis on the inside, and there wasn't much more to ask about it than that, but there has been an outcry on the blog, and as you all know, we listen to people's outcries. So, Ken, what should I have asked you about Nazi UFOs? Well, I mean, I, I suppose the, the real question comes down to, if you're a big UFO fan, like I say, the Nazi UFO subgenre is a big part of that subgenre. So you can, of course, drill down into the depths and, and ask, you know, well, Ken, in your book, you depict the Haunabu as the little uh, acorn bell-shaped UFO, but isn't that also called the Vril Saucer? And shouldn't you have maybe drawn more uh, connections between the difference between the Haunabu and the Dora or g- gone deep into the weeds there, which is the same sort of uh, train-spotting en- entertainment that you have when you talk about any kind of, you know, experimental aircraft or tanks or anything else, people just can't stop talking about what kind of um, uh, main muzzle cannon it mounts or whatever else. But I suspect that what people sort of may have wanted to hear is a, hold on, the Nazis had UFOs side of the of the spectrum? Because my theory is that anyone who's so into the Nazi UFOs as to want to nitpick my specific Nazi UFOs doesn't really need uh, Ken and Robin to show them to the sunny uplands of crazy that they're already up there planning their uh, swastika bedangled flag. Well, people do like to have their uh, bugaboos reified. Yeah, well, I'm I'm here. If if my career has been nothing else, it has been about reifying bugaboos. <laughs> the Department of Bugaboo Reification. Right. It's a it's a grand bugaboo reification project. Einstein, for example, spent the last decade of his life trying to reify bugaboos. Couldn't do it. You know, not that I'm better than Einstein, but do the math. And and different bugaboos. Yeah. In-ray bugaboos, obviously. I mean, I'm not a better violinist than him either. What was our point? Anyway, uh, Nazi UFOs, uh, the sort of super story is that whatever crazy technology you believe the Nazis harnessed, whether it be the mystical vril from within the hollow earth, whether it be uh, zero-point energy that they built in um, uh, a secret facility in the Silesian Mountains in Poland, uh, as you can read about in my latest Ken Writes About Stuff, uh, Die Glocke. The Nazi Bell is a uh, wonderful uh, little 21st century alchemical myth that I enjoy quite a bit. Or however it is you believe the Nazis 
developed superpowers, you know, what a radium engine like on Captain Nemo's ship, as far as I'm concerned, they put it into experimental flying craft. And this ties in with the reports that U.S. pilots were uh, making of seeing weird glowing blobs when they were flying bombing runs over Germany and nicknaming them Foo Fighters. I believe after a uh, truck in a comic strip of the time, Barney Google, I think. I may be wrong, but it's a, uh, but it was a sort of a humorous reference to what was probably just ball lightning, which we see all the time now, uh, but there were many, many fewer high altitude flights under conditions of, um, uh, you know, in, in storms, which you don't usually do now, but you did when you're flying bombing runs because you can't really call those off. But anyway, they saw a bunch of ball lightning. They called it Foo Fighters. They thought it was, a wonderful, interesting, maybe Nazi experimental weapons. And the people who started the UFO craze in 1947 and 48 immediately looked back to find previous UFO examples, such as Ezekiel's wheel from the Bible or the flight of shields that came over the hill in Rome and guaranteed Numa Pompilius a victory in battle, things like this. Uh, and so they saw the Foo Fighters, and they said, those must have been Nazi UFOs. And then the rest of the process has been explaining, A, how the Nazis got UFOs, B, what kind of UFOs they had, and C, what happened to the Nazi UFOs after the war. And the general conclusions are, they got the UFOs by building them with their Nazi mad science. The UFO specifics have been sort of invented by a number of dubious eyewitnesses and uh, crazy people in the same standard pattern that you get people who um, sort out what kind of aliens ride down to uh, contact you in the Arizona desert. And the uh, specific question of what happened to them depends, again, on your sort of sociopolitical goal in making up Nazi UFO stories or believing Nazi UFO stories, whether they were all destroyed and it's just the way it is, which is sort of the standard UFO uh, myth that uh, the, they were, uh, you know, destroyed in the war and it's uh, nothing but an interesting curiosity, and now let's talk about the real UFOs from space. Or people who believe that either the Soviets or the Americans captured the Nazi UFOs and took them back to their homelands, and that some of the UFOs that we see now are secret aircraft flown by whoever your ideological opponent is, whether that be the U.S. Air Force or the Reds. And then the third faction, which is the, the fun and crazy faction, as opposed to the less fun but still crazy faction, is that the Nazis flew their UFO fleet to a secret base. And that secret base has been variously identified as the North Pole or Antarctica, which is how I identify it in the Nazi occult to sort of unify those um, uh, those myths a little bit. Or to the moon, as Heinlein uh, mentions in Destination uh, Rocket Ship Galileo, which becomes the movie Destination Moon. And, you know, Iron Sky, I think, has the Nazis go to the moon, so you, or Mars, somewhere like that. So the Nazis taking their UFOs and fleeing off in sort of an exodus, a Battlestar Galactica type thing, is another common little bit of that. And that's the sort of combination, I guess, of the 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 the, uh, the lost city romance where you stumble, where Tarzan stumbles upon some valley that's full of crusaders or Romans, and the lost cause uh, where you have the sort of romantic notion that the guys that just got given a beatdown will come back for the sequel and deliver an even more hellacious beatdown to their enemies. And people who believe that kind of thing are usually ideological, do ideologically dodgy at best. But there is no denying that it makes a compelling sort of pulp science fiction story. So it's a mythification, basically, of the process by which Nazis got to Argentina, 
And I guess also even more so a mythification of the way that Nazi scientists got uh, whitewashed into the American missile program. Right, and into the Soviet missile program and everywhere else. That Everyone who could grab a Nazi scientist was doing it, and it was us, the British, and the uh, Soviets who were doing the grabbing. But if it had been any three other countries, it would have gone into their missile program. Well, I think that handles our preamble hut, so stay tuned, folks, for the actual podcast to begin. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Jason Ansari asks Ken and Robin, would you recommend running Knights Black Agents in a significantly earlier period of time, say Elizabethan England or Milan under the Sforzas? And since my answer to all questions to begin, would you recommend running Knights Black Agents, <laughs> is an unqualified yes, absolutely, uh, Robin, how would you answer uh, Jacob Ansari's question to us? Well, I guess the question is... We have a large corpus of genre material to use as our source of emulation for a modern-day thriller spy story that just happens to have vampires in it. Of course, we've got a ton of vampires to work with, and we've got a ton of modern thrillers from the uh, Bourne trilogy on down. It's a staple of entertainment. So uh, since Gumshoe is all about emulating genre, how does it work if you no longer have such a rich corpus of material to draw from? What are the common assumptions? Everybody, when you sit down at the table and say, okay, this is the Bourne trilogy, if Treadstone were vampires, can lock onto that right away, both the Treadstone and the vampires. So what do they have to lock onto? And the equivalent uh, sort of uh, Renaissance intrigue uh, there's lots of espionage, but we don't have a lot of sort of spy thriller style material to draw from. So you would have to kind of uh, create more of it. And I guess the equivalent to the spy thriller is the swashbuckler, right? The Dumas mm -hmm. thing where you're trying to get the, uh, the, the, the jewels that uh, Richelieu is looking for. And then you have your chases on wagons and your chases on horseback and... Uh, so uh, you, I guess, then make the evil aristocracy that you're dealing with secretly vampires, and uh, you would need to translate some of the rules into uh, gumshoe swashbuckly rules, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that I would look at is saying, just like you said, you know, you identify the source material, and the source material in terms of the things that people have already seen that you're emulating, as opposed to gaming as a simultaneously an attempt to run a, sa a satisfying game and back project uh, Jason Bourne into the, the court of the Tudors, while uh, a noble goal, I think, may, uh, <laughs> may run into a, a couple of hidden landmines uh, in terms of uh, player expectations and other things. But I think that when you look at trying to do a swashbuckling game, I would look right now at, at Knights Black Agents or any gumshoe game and say there's not enough sword fighting. The, the, the sword fighting rules are the same sort of relatively simple, relatively straightforward combat rules, even with all the uh, crunchy bits that we've added in Knights Black Agents, most of those crunchy bits come to us out of John Woo and out of action movie directors involving, you know, multiple shot firearms as opposed to single shot pistols. And while you can imagine a action sequence in which Sir Walter Raleigh is, is swinging on board a Spanish galleon and he's got you know, 19 single-shot pistols, and he just keeps firing them off, you know, two-handed and dropping them onto the uh, onto the deck in slow-motion New York reload style. The sort of 
rhythms of the combat are going to be thrown off a little bit by even that level of imagination. I would want to, you know, try to, you know, dance up the, the sword fights a little bit, you know, create a sort of thriller chase mechanic for sword fights. And I think that that would be a, such a crucial part of emulating the Dumas genre that you might wind up letting the spy part of it go to the wall a little bit. I mean, obviously, if, if uh, Jacob Ansari or any of our other interlocutors are gigantic fans of the increasingly crazy and exciting amount of information that we know about Elizabethan spy stories, uh, you know, from, from the reckoning on down, you know, then that's one thing. But if what you're trying to do is create a Jason Bourne Elizabethan film world, then there's going to be, I, I think there's going to be a little more mechanical adaptation then I would be comfortable with, you know, selling it. Now, that said, maybe I'll just do a, a swashbuckling mod as a Ken writes about stuff, and then you can just run it right out and, and use it as written. But I think that you're right. I think that looking at the things that you're trying to emulate, the swashbuckler has a different rhythm from the thriller, and when you try and blend them as people did in the latest Three Musketeers with the flying boats and everything, it, I think, winds up sort of thudding to the ground. It's very, it's a very tricky uh, thing to pull off, and even people who are really good at it don't always pull it off. And even more alarming, there'd be the prospect that your main reference would be that film Anonymous, which I gave a miss to, <laughs> but it's an action movie treatment of the theory that Shakespeare did not write Shakespeare, um, and uh, is by all accounts dire. So one of the things that I think you want to do if you want to get buy-in from your players to play anything is have some really cool versions of something to show them. I guess uh, Flashman is also, uh, uh, you know, that's a sort of a, a spy genre. It's a different period. It's a little later. Um, and uh, But then again, you know, that's still more of a swashbuckler. And I think also um, in all of these examples, the challenge is, you know, if you want to actually take the Knights Black Agents aspect of it, the vampire stuff, it's an easier fit with the paranoia of contemporary spy thrillers than it is with the more lighthearted associations that we have with either the swashbuckler era or with the Victorian hijinks of uh, McDonald Fraser. Yeah, we don't really have a a dark swashbuckler as a as a, as an exemplar, you're, I think you're very much right. I mean, there certainly are lighthearted spy films that you know infused nice black agents. For example, you know the the James Bond films are are relatively straightforward, lighthearted. The the level of paranoia in them, even in the ones that are supposed to be paranoid, is, is not that dire. Com certainly compared to the Bourne films or or Ronin or any of the other or Ultraviolet or any of the other touchstones that I used. But I think that there may be a direction that that's where the actual history can save you, because obviously Elizabethan England was a police state. Habsburg Spain was a perhaps even worse police state. So both of them already have the institutional paranoia. Reading enough of the history or knowing enough of the history, internalizing that history, is a good way to get into the field. You'll be creating, I think, will you or nil you a more dust mode game if you are running a game informed by the history as opposed to a game informed by the non-existent paranoiac spy thriller set in the 16th century that obviously in a better universe there's already a lot of right and unless you are all equally steeped as not only gm but players in the history the gm would have to then design at least the initial investigative scenarios not just to be a compelling mystery uh, where the mystery is often the same mystery on the order of knight's black agents which is who's trying to kill me now who can i 
get to next to hide from them temporarily. But even within that level, you'd want to design it so that the early scenarios were a tour of the history of the world or mm-hmm. the, your section of the, the world and your section of the period. And that would be a way to sort of communicate that to the players. But again, you return to the problem of the difficulty of getting your players in sync to a period that they're not necessarily familiar with and don't have a lot of tropes to go on that match the investigative part. I think maybe it would be more fruitful, you know, for us down the line to think about uh, doing a mashup uh, like Knight's Black Agents, but something that was different and was meant to be, you know, the swashbuckler genre, right? Rather than trying to seal these two uh things together that we don't quite have any examples to point to. Yeah, I, th- I think that certainly, um, and, it, and again, I don't think it's an either or. I think that if you and I come out with a terrific uh, gumshoe, or you or I come out with a terrific gumshoe swashbuckler, then people will be able to, just like you can blend Knights Black Agents and Trail of Cthulhu already, will be able to blend uh, that swashbuckler and Knights Black Agents, or that swashbuckler and Trail of Cthulhu, or that swashbuckler and Mutant City Blues, or whatever it is that uh, they want to use those tropes for. And I think that as Gumshoe continues to develop as a line, that's going to be one of the fun things about it, is that people will be able to make those mashups happen that a timorous and cowardly Hollywood is not yet. That uh, there's no reason that we can't eventually, once uh, the line has built out and started supporting assumptions, and once we've got maybe a little more, uh, you know, what, what do I want to say? More... Uh, best practices internalized by not just, you know, us designers, but also by the majority of gumshoe GMs that going through and retconning a imaginary genre that doesn't exist and creating a satisfying gumshoe experience with it will be no harder than taking the pages of your favorite spine-breaking fantasy trilogy and turning it into your D&D game. I think it would be much easier, actually, to go back in time to the a prior era of the Ezoterra setting, and uh, because it already has this sort of Baroque quality to it, it's based around two different secret societies, which, of course, are a very wired into that, uh, to the eras that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And that I think it's a a more natural fit. And so that you'd be adding creatures of unremitting horror and you wouldn't necessarily then expect the level of action thrills that you would, if you tell your players that you're running a Night's Black Agents mod. And the other thing about as a terrorist, of course, is that both of those eras, both Elizabethan England and the Renaissance are periods where actual magical investigation is very big. I mean, it's part of the news. It's what everyone is worried about, you know, witches and wizards and and trouble like that. And simultaneously, courts are hiring alchemists, they're hiring cabalists, they're hiring uh, specialists in the magical arts to, you know, basically serve as advisors of the, what was called at the time, the natural philosophy, the 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 invisible but but known to be existent universe that was out there. So that fits really well with something like Esoterrorists, where the notion that doing magic is you know pushing a hole through the veil and it's a terrible idea, and so there has to be a a group of uh, sort of cleanup artists who operate behind the scenes and you know dose uh, John D with uh, mercury to make sure that he stops talking to. Uh, extraterrestrial intelligences. You would be the forces of the Enlightenment trying to create the schism between science and the occult that doesn't start to exist until then. Right. And so that can give you a great sort of historical 
arc, and I think is a uh, probably much better fit for those settings. Yeah, I, I, again, though, um, uh, I do want to return to my fundamental answer, which is when anyone asks, <laughs> would you recommend running Knights Black Agents? The answer is yes, absolutely. Or, or Esoterrorists. No one loses in this No, scenario. no, absolutely. It's a, it's a win-win-win as far as I'm concerned. I'll tell you what. Buy all the Gumshoe games, then work out which one you want to run in Elizabethan England after that. I think Elizabethan England Ashen Stars could be really strong. <laughs> well, I, I think uh, now that we've got you buying the whole line, it's time to move on to a new hack. From the retinal scan, from the pat-down, and from the agent quoting back at you the intimate details of your internet search history, we know that you have entered the Tradecraft Hut with us. And this week we're going to talk about a, a magician who played a key role in World War II. And until now, until I saw the name of this person, the only magician I knew who helped win World War II was Luzaki, uh, who I've always... Uh, pictured uh, storming the beach uh, at Normandy wearing his magician's tuxedo, uh, which suggests that I somewhat have misrecalled his anecdote about that. But, uh, Ken, tell us about Jasper Maskelin, the war magician. Okay, ja the, the story of Jasper Maskelin is in kind of two parts. And the first part is the story of the war magician. And he was a member, he was the third in a storied line of British stage magicians, uh, John Neville and Neville Maskelin were his uh, grandfather and father, and they had their own Maskelin theater. They did uh, illusions and magic and, and stage magic. He was like the um, Michael Douglas of magic in the sense that he's part of this storied uh, career going all the way back to the beginning of the form. And during World War II, uh, as a British patriot, he enlisted and went to work for British military intelligence. And at that time, uh, he was a specialist in stage magic, and so the British military intelligence, showing an uncommon amount of both, put him in charge of the camouflage section to help develop camouflage and hidden devices that could be hidden in your sleeve if you were in, say, the SOE going into occupied Europe and uh, bringing, you know, maps or explosives or whatever else to the resistance. And so he was, you know, pottering away at that, uh, you know, developing camouflage techniques and developing hidden uh, concealable items when he was called down to Egypt to help run the, what was called the A-Force under General Wavell in Egypt, which was the force in charge of deception and trickery against Rommel in Africa. And so he goes down, and according to his autobiography and the book The War Magician by David Fisher, uh, which is a terrific read, um, he went down and invented a method of creating uh, camouflage for tanks. He set up uh, giant spotlights that would uh, dazzle and confuse uh, German planes trying to bomb the Suez Canal. And he hid the harbor of Alexandria from German bombers by sort of recreating the lighthouse and other main lighting uh, elements of Alexandria several miles 
in the other direction, so that when the Germans flew over and bombed it, they just bombed a bunch of empty desert. And his uh, pinnacle of his success was his role in creating Operation Bertram, which was uh, Montgomery's attempt to do a uh, a feint at El Alamein, where he would build up a real army of tanks and guns on the northern flank that would be disguised as trucks and uh, trees, and he would build up a army of pretend tanks and guns on the southern flank that would actually be trucks and trees. And so then when the Germans were all waiting for the attack from the south, he would strike from the north, and Montgomery's tactical genius would uh, win the day at Alamein. And of course, as we all know, uh, it was not Montgomery's tactical genius that won at Alamein. It was the 8-to-1 advantage in artillery tubes that won at Alamein. But Montgomery did not screw that up, so he became Viscount uh, Montgomery of Alamein, and Rommel was um, uh, thrown back into Tunisia as he deserved being a filthy Nazi. So the, um, the, 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 the story, The War Magician, ends with him going off to Canada to triumphantly train uh, the Canadian forces in deception and evasion, and then sort of peters off and doesn't mention the part that he moves to Kenya to avoid taxes and dies an alcoholic failure. <laughs> so uh i have a couple of questions here so first of all are you saying that really his activities though colorful were not actually uh decisive in uh, uh any of the engagements that he uh, helped uh add misdirection to well one of the sad sad truths and the, one of the worst things about being a responsible historian and i totally understand why people don't do it <laughs> is that you run into a story like this, and it turns out to be a tissue of lies. And it's very, very sad. Uh, Neville Maskelyne, or Jasper Maskelyne, was a great stage magician, but he had already uh, sort of been feuding with his dad and grandpa, and he's like, I'm going to be my own magician. I'm not going to be part of the Maskelyne family of magicians. I'm going to break out on my own. And, and that was not working out well. So when he enlisted, part of it was because he was sort of, he, he was out of clients in, in Britain. He was He was losing... Uh, market share pretty badly. So it's that classic trope of you're out of options in your life, so you enlist. So you enlist. And also, you know, there was a degree of patriotism because, for gosh sakes, he was British. But when he joined the camouflage section, he was rapidly seen as kind of a goof who didn't have the faintest idea about real military camouflage and was sent to Egypt more to get him out of the way than anything else. When he got to Egypt, we are, we are I, I was so delighted to find that he actually did design and build the canvas sunshield that you would put onto a tank to make it look like a truck. And uh, so that when you're driving around, German reconnaissance planes can't tell that it's a tank doing that. Sadly, it's very hard to hide tank tracks, so it's a very short-term sort of solution. Right, but, but it's a tank wearing a truck hat. It's a tank wearing a truck hat, and that was something that he did build. And he did do some work on concealable items to be carried into... Uh, enemy lines, although a lot of other people did work on those before and after him. It was not him sort of single-handedly building the arsenal of the SOE. He certainly built a lot of it, or, you know, perhaps maybe, you know, refined other people's designs. And uh, his uh, great dazzle uh, beams to hide the Suez Canal, the closest that ever got was a prototype that was 21 flashlights taped together that he, he showed to someone, and then by the time he ghost-wrote his memoirs, it was like, yeah, sure, I built a giant dazzle screen to hide the Suez Canal. He never hid, the, uh, he never hid Alexandria. There's a great bit in The War Magician where he's sent to Syria to engage in a one-on-one -on -one duel with a, a magician who worked for the local imam, 
and uh, by confounding him with his stage magic tricks, he forced the, the magician to admit that Jasper Maskelyne was the better magician, and so that's why the British forces could move freely through Syria, which, hmm, of course... Do I sense an echo of biblical narrative Do I? There? Do I sense hmm. that? It's almost as though his ghostwriter was a guy in a hurry. Well, you know, steal from the best. Steal from the best. <laughs> he never went to Canada, which I'm sure is, is breaking your heart, uh, knowing that uh, Camp, a- Camp M, which was supposed to be the Camp Magic that Masculine set up was actually the uh, camp manufacturer. It just was about building camouflage equipment. Or so we've made you or think. Or so we've made you think with misdirection. And of course, Operation Bertram A was a colossal failure because it didn't fool the Germans for a second. And B, uh, at the time of Operation Bertram, Masculine had been transferred, shall we say, to the morale section where he was in Cairo putting on magic shows for British troops and uh, raising uh, funds for the war, just like Captain America in the first part of the movie. So he's not single-handedly winning the war by uh, hiding tanks or uh, any of that other stuff. He, he, you know, he had a perfectly serviceable career. He was not a shirker. He did work on camouflage. He did work on concealable uh, weapons and concealable gear. He did, uh, as far as anyone can tell, have a very major role in either uh, perfecting or even designing the sun shield, the, the system by which you, you put those, those tarps over the tanks and drive them around. Uh, Wavell, General Wavell actually drew it out on a piece of card and said, could we build something like this? And Masculine was, um, you know, the guy who, who got it done. But it was more like Wavell designed the trick and Masculine was the guy behind the stage who figured out how to, you know, saw the woman in half. Uh, which is the part that you actually want a stage magician for, I would think. So you've answered my next question, which is, why haven't we heard of this guy, and why isn't there a movie about him? And the answer is because it's all twaddle. Well, we heard about the guy because there was a terrific best-selling biography of him, and there was a movie about him. Uh, first of all, there was a movie about him in 1937 when he was just Britain's greatest magician. Uh, uh, the Pathé, I think, did a, a thing of him. There was uh, going to be a film, uh, I think, 20th Century Fox or Paramount, one of those, was going to do a, a, a treatment for a, a movie about Masculine. So I think the film was never made. Uh, I think 20th Century Fox passed on it, and I don't think it was because they didn't believe the story. I think it was just because it was the late 60s and war films were becoming a, a specialized audience. You had to make it a tentpole war picture. You couldn't just make a war picture and release it the way that you could back in the 40s and 50s. Right. And even the uh, embellished story is actually hard to fashion into a motion picture because somebody who builds stuff, uh, which is not perhaps the uh, basis for a, an exciting cinematic protagonist. So you would have to go even further in fictionalizing him to make him a sort of a spy who went and used his magic to... Uh, uh, discover things rather than just working in the camouflage sector. Yeah, the um, there is a story in the biography that is pretty awesome, very Mission Impossibly, um, where he uh, the, the 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 British have figured out that there is a radio transmitter somewhere in the palace of King Farouk that is being used to uh, send vital intelligence to Rommel, and of course King Farouk is suspicious of the British. And he's pro-Axis, and so you can't just get British uh, spies into King Farouk's palace. He's got it on lockdown. But fortunately, King Farouk had seen uh, Masculine perform when King Farouk visited London, and so he invited Masculine to put on a show in uh, his palace. And so, according to, again, this is according to the autobiography, um, 
Masculine goes in, he puts on a big show that involves Masculine vanishing from the stage for six minutes. And during those six minutes, according to the book, he f- he searches the palace and finds the radio transmitter. And um, I forget if he steals it or breaks it or just reports it to the British so that when they go storming in with the search warrant, they can find it and uh, slap King Farouk around some. But of course, that didn't happen. He did actually perform for King Farouk because King Farouk was a, a, a pampered, uh, spoiled uh, brat who, you know, hearing that the world's greatest magician was in Cairo, demanded that he come and perform for him at uh, the palace. And he gave Masculine a gold watch, which Masculine would show to people uh, drunkenly in Kenya and then bend their ear about the awesome story of him single-handedly foiling Rommel. And again, part of the reason that these stories came out and were encouraged to come out and have not been particularly contradicted is because the real story of how Rommel found out about all of the British troop movements was the American consul in Cairo was just the world's worst uh, at operational security. And so he would go to briefings with the British High Command, and he would go back to the American embassy, and he would send off the full and complete contents of his briefing, but he'd send it in a very old code that the Nazis had already broken. (laughs) (laughs) And so all of Rommel, I mean, a huge part of Rommel's, uh, you know, what what he called the Fingerspitzgefühl, the ability to feel at his fingertips what his enemy was going to do, was him sitting down and reading the transcripts of this doltish American consul's (laughs) radio messages. Well, it was at his fingertips. (laughs) It was literally at his fingertips. But because that, uh, you know, bangs up the myth of Rommel, you don't see a lot of North Africa specialists, you know, really digging into these stories because it reveals American personnel looking like dolts. You don't see a lot of American historians do it. And because the British would much prefer to believe that they, you know, beat the Nazis with sort of David Niven-like pluck and daring as opposed to by hanging on desperately until the Russians and Americans can save them. The British don't really want to go in and debunk masculine either. So it's sort of a myth that serves all of the interests simultaneously. Well, I feel it's uh, creeping into another topic, which is uh, Rommel as the World War II German general you're allowed to admire. So I think, uh, uh, speaking of creeping, we need to creep (laughs) out of the tradecraft hut. Rattle of shiny nickels and the um, uh, pinging of low four-digit PayPal receipts tell us that we have entered the business of gaming. (laughs) And today in the business of gaming, we figured we'd talk a little bit about the most recent catastrophic explosion in the Kickstarter-verse, namely the uh, complete collapse of the Doom that came to Atlantic City, a brilliant board game that I played in an early prototype that was designed by Keith Baker and a superb... Uh, designer, obviously, and a guy who knows his Cthulhu, uh, nigh as well as I, I would say, and by uh, Lee Moyer, who is the artist's artist, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and they sort of put this Kickstarter out, and they put their names on it, and of course, it hugely funded. Uh, it was, I think, marketed for 35000 and it got to 120 something thousand. And then it turned out that the people actually behind the Kickstarter, a guy named Eric Chevalier, or Chevalier, who was the sort of impresario who was going to publish the game, was, depending on your take, a fraud or a moron, and spent all of the money without actually producing the game. So, Robin, do you have 
a specific thought on the doom that came to Atlantic City, or do you want to take us into a larger pundity role where we rub our chin and extrapolate stuff? Well, first of all, we don't know that he spent all the money. He has uh, said that he is going to work to repay first the people who pre-ordered from him and then the Kickstarter uh, backers. So we don't know how much he has on hand to be uh, refunding people. And uh, obviously this is a situation where uh, the the facts are somewhat murky. So uh, I just want, before we talk in, in general about the phenomenon of Kickstarter failures, uh, we, there are a couple of things that I think uh, we want to address, which is one, I think there's a misunderstanding in people who are looking at this secondhand, thinking that it was just a unlicensed Monopoly parody. And you can attest that the gameplay was actually quite different. The the, the board was the parody. The gameplay is its own activity. And it's, yeah, it, it's not, it's not, um, uh, what was it? That I, I think John Wick did a terrific, it was Necronomonopoly or Archimonopoly, I forget what it was, but John Wick did a terrific uh, Mythos uh, Monopoly parody a while back that was exactly what people are thinking it, you know, that would be. Whereas Doom that came to Atlantic City sort of took Monopoly as one of the jumping off points for a, 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 a different and more sophisticated gameplay. So in the greater macro sense, this is something that everyone from the beginning has expected would eventually happen, which is that there would be a uh, one or two or, or a series of spectacular flameouts because there are so many different ways for a Kickstarter to flame out, uh, and the ways that it might flame out are sometimes unique to the gaming sphere and sometimes not. Uh, Fred Hicks has made the very astute point that launching a game product for the first time as a startup company is extraordinarily difficult and fraught with obstacles, and running a high-profile Kickstarter for the first time is extraordinarily difficult and fraught with obstacles, and that if you are someone who is doing both of those things at the same time, you are essentially doubling the chance that something is going to go wrong. And as far as we can tell in this case, it went very wrong indeed, because it, it appears anyway that the guy running the Kickstarter was uh, diverting funds to uh, other purposes, including the creation of his game company, rather than when what he really, you know, when you're running a Kickstarter, you're lucky if you've correctly budgeted for just the project that you're doing in terms of all of the unexpected expenses and, and inevitable delays that will come your way, that the process of producing any complicated creative product already is uh, full of unforeseen dangers so that you want to play it very, very conservatively and not be spending money from the gross that doesn't absolutely have to go into the product itself. Now, once you get to the end of the process, of course, the company or the publisher or the person running Kickstarter should, in addition to the talent, be taking a share of the net and a fair share of the net, but not uh, slicing the gross off the top because you can't uh, there's usually very, very little wiggle room in, in those budgets, and it's hard enough uh, if you're doing everything very carefully to have it all come uh, right in the end. Of course, Kickstarter is supposed to be not something that is the entire life of your product, but something that gets your product rolling with some nice lucrative seed money. Uh, and so even if you do it right, you're not necessarily going to be in the black when you first shipped just to the uh, backers. But um, 
this has a huge sort of ripple effect in terms of people's desire to participate in the Kickstarter process because you are essentially buying something that doesn't exist yet and trusting that it will exist. And there is obviously going to be a limit where people get burned enough times that they're going to uh, stop doing it. So the question is whether this will be a sort of a slow killing of the golden goose and this moment of Kickstarter enthusiasm will be remembered as a crazy time back when everything goes back to the old business model or whether people will develop the sort of critical series of questions that they ask themselves when they jump in to make it much less likely that they're uh, going to be burned. And of course, that puts a big burden on anyone who's now launching a Kickstarter, uh, even if it's the other someone completely unrelated to you that has eroded the available pool of trust among gamers who are interested in Kickstarter things, that that has a negative impact that affects everybody, if not catastrophically. Well, I think that you're right that obviously there is a, a degree to which you know public trust is, is breached whenever something like this happens. But in the same way that public trust is breached when you find out that, you know, John Corzine stole, you know, a billion dollars from his brokerage clients, people don't stop going to brokers. They just say, well, I've got to be more careful with my broker or my broker wouldn't do that because he's, you know, insured or it doesn't matter to me because I'm only investing a little bit of money, not a whole ton of money. And so, you know, it, it's just like any other capitalist enterprise. The fact that, you know, one, um, uh, you know, fried chicken outlet shorted you on, on chicken doesn't mean you don't ever buy fried chicken from a fried chicken store. It just means maybe you don't go back to that place or you count the stuff in the box before you take it home. The sort of common sense uh, responses to the, the risk of being defrauded or, or um, uh, disappointed in any commercial transaction. And I don't think that Kickstarter is some magically new different thing. I think what it is is another way of trading money for stuff. And the fact that you're trading it on the front end in you know, it has the downside that you don't get your stuff immediately. And I think like 75% of Kickstarter products are late. So I think in theory, you, by now you go into a Kickstarter, you know, you're buying the stuff late, but, um, you, uh, are buying, you know, also a sense of patronage and a sense of being part of the process. And if you're backing someone on Kickstarter, who's done a lot of it, then you know that you're going to be backing someone who's going to be sort of sharing the creative process with you in a way that you're not going to get if you just go to the game store and you and you buy the game off the shelves, even if the game gets to the game store and you simultaneously, which a lot of times it does happen. I do want to point out before we get too deep into the generic woods that Keith Baker and Lee Moyer are producing a print-and-play version of The Doom That Came to Atlantic City, and you'll be able to get that from Keith if you were a, a Kickstarter backer. So if you are a Kickstarter backer or you're curious about a print-and-play version of Doom that came to Atlantic City or you just want to um, uh, express your support to Keith and Lee who were uh, sort of boned by this whole process and who, you know, the, 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 the problem of the, of the A-list game designer is admittedly not the sort of thing that I think has a lot of, a lot of salience with the larger viewing audience, but it's another problem that this, uh, this specific Kickstarter failure has done. So if you go to Keith's uh, website, which we will have in the show notes, uh, you will be able to get in contact with him if you are a Kickstarter backer, get your print and play, and sort of find out what's happening to the game as opposed to what's happening to the Kickstarter project, which is a smoldering hole in the ground. Now, uh, I think you're right to suggest that the direct interests of game designers are not necessarily salient to everyone, but since this is a podcast featuring two game designers, I would <laughs> like to talk about that a bit, because there is a value 
in having the lead person on the project be the lead creator on the project because people, in order to feel that sense of patronage and involvement, want direct contact with that person. And that does, I think, have a positive impact on the uh, sales or on the final funding amount that you reach. But as I've certainly discovered with the Hillfolk Kickstarter, the other side of that is that you wind up doing a lot of customer service type stuff that normally would be delegated to somebody else in the publishing house <laughs> just because you're the, the main focus. And also it's, uh, you know, someone can contact you through the site at any time and you sort of need to jump on that. And so there's also a cost in terms of your day-to-day brain space that you have to do your main creative work, not only on that project, but on uh, in pursuit of other obligations. So uh, it's enormously desirable from the point of a game designer to, in fact, delegate uh, the role of publisher and of Kickstarter runner to somebody else. So the test is then going to be for people who are being approached to work on Kickstarted things. Uh, we are also going to have to develop the tools for due diligence to separate out the with it on the ball guy who has a great idea and a startup and the guy who is going to uh, pay himself off the top from the gross and make a bunch of mistakes. And I think in in this instance that uh, Keith and uh, Lee have been very gratified by the sort of lack of emotional blowback that has landed on them out of this because they have been uh, hosed as well. But it's going to be uh, a question that everybody on our side of the table is going to have to ask themselves in terms of, you know, kind of vetting people. And it can be very difficult to tell the difference between um, somebody who's going to go on to great things and someone who is in way over their head. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, as you mentioned, as Fred points out, that person is the same person. He's in over his head and he's going to go on to great things. And it's very hard. I mean, now, obviously, you look at Fred Hicks and you say, this guy's a solid pro with a million successful projects under his belt. I'd, you know, back his Kickstarter to Mars if it happened. But back when we first met Fred, he was just a crazy kid with blue hair and a dream. And you could easily be forgiven by saying, I don't know about a crazy kid with blue hair and a dream. I'm suspicious of both those things. And so it's it's really, I think it's it's a rotten trick to play on young entrepreneurs who are actually not idiots uh, to flame out as spectacularly as Eric did. And it's a rotten trick to play on young designers who don't have the reputation for solid professionalism that Keith and Lee do. Because if those guys had been two first-time designers putting something together, their career could really have been badly damaged by this because the stink of failure, I think, would be much easier to connect to them even if they were just as screwed by their publisher as Keith and Lee actually were. Right, because they they have long resumes and uh, long histories of delivering stuff, and so they're much more likely to get the benefit of the doubt than somebody who was also a first-timer joining with a first-time business guy. Mm -hmm. You're not necessarily going to know the the behind-the-scenes detail and be able to distinguish you know, between, you know, which of the members of the group project failed to turn their work in on time. And I think that's that's the real damage that's being done to the sort of the glory days of Kickstarter is not the notion that people will flee from crowdfunding and burn down the Internet in fear that uh, they're not going to get their board game. I think the real problem is that Kickstarter was really created for the first time designer and the first time publisher and the first time producer of something that it, it was really, I think, in its in OVO, it was intended to be you know, a bunch of kids who want to put on a show in the barn and save the teen center type projects, right. not necessarily 
marketing research for established game companies. And, and ironically, that, that, <laughs> that it is those very people that Kickstarter's dangers are most poised to destroy. Yeah. And, and also that it is those very people whose, uh, whose successes, if they, um, if, if, I mean, the thing about Doom that came to Atlantic City is it was a hugely successful Kickstarter that got news for that reason. And then it was also a hugely abysmal failure. I mean, only like 3% of Kickstarters don't deliver anything, right? If, if the project succeeds, you get something, you get your, your, your product in, you know, maybe a year, maybe two years, maybe, you know, maybe a decade, but you do get something at the end of the creative process. Right. The, the number's three now, but it's, it's even with the projects that have already been funded, there are going to be a few more that are, yeah. uh, have yet to be acknowledged as having flamed out. And, and we don't know if this, uh, you know, this three or 4% rate that of failure is the standard rate for, for Kickstarter, or if it's going to creep up to the standard rate of failure for all small businesses, which is closer to 25%. Right. And if, uh, cause it's one thing for your business to fail and another thing for you to even fail to deliver the product that you set out to deliver, right? People can theoretically have very successful Kickstarters and deliver on them, but will still wind up going out of business. Oh, yes. Sir. Sometimes it is the very successful Kickstarter that will drive you out of business. Yes. Uh, the only thing worse uh, for a startup than failure is success. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think another thing that I'm a little concerned about is the emotional dynamic that drives Kickstarter is that already there's a big obligation that you take on when someone agrees to buy your board game or your book or whatever before it comes out, in part because of the rhetoric of idealism and almost sort of a pseudo-charity atmosphere that surrounds it, even though Kickstarter does not, in fact, support actual charities at all, really. Um that uh, people do feel, uh, I think, more of a sense of the creators being beholden to them. And that's something that if people's general attitude toward Kickstarter uh, sours a bit, right? If you get burned, if you open your email in the morning and get a letter from the creator or something saying that the uh, project that you paid money for has been abandoned and your money is for nothing, and then the that afternoon... Um, somebody has a quite legitimate announcement of a delay or something, or, you know, that the people on the masthead are going to be slightly different or any of the myriad of changes a product undergoes from its early development phase to its delivery, that you're going to have people have more negative emotion bound up in that because they, uh, the fact that they feel more of a stake in things, if the emotional relationship sours and certainly the history of patronage of the arts uh, even before Kickstarter was certainly one in which the relationship between the patron and the creator is often uh, one that can go uh, wrong. Uh, it certainly makes it harder to diplomatically navigate those waters, even when you're doing the right thing as a creator or publisher. Yeah, the 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 whole. I mean, it, like like most social phenomena, it, it's very difficult to tease one thread out and say this is the key thread. That all the threads together. Uh, create the feel. So Kickstarter has, like you say, the sort of sense of uh, charity. It has a sense of patronage. It has a sense of being part of the design. It has a sense of fan titlement. It has a sense of, um, uh, you know, getting to watch the, 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 the sausage being made that, that a lot of people like. And it has the sense of, you know, helping out entrepreneurs and helping out small businesses and small artists and small creators. And it also has the sense of being a marketing uh, tool for increasingly large companies and, you know, not just Paizo, but, you know, Warner Brothers to an extent ran a Kickstarter via Veronica Mars that 
was very, very successful. And uh, that is certainly being paid attention to by, you know, people like Soderbergh, who are sick to death of the normal studio way of doing things. So I think that you can... You can look at all kinds of uh, thing. I mean, Kickstarter is is a is a, is a is an ecosystem constantly in motion. And one thing that being game designers in the in this uh, sort of uh, silver age of business, at least, is teaching us is that nothing, no model ever stays the same. So even what Kickstarter was two years ago is going to be different from what Kickstarter is two years from now. And we're always going to have to be, you know, on the hop and and chasing the next. Uh, the next hilltop. There's never going to be a spot at which I think we settle down and say, this is now a solid business model. This is now how everything feels. We can do this with the same sort of confidence that we could do anything in the age before the internet. And I think that, you know, Kickstarter, like everything else, is going to be a constant process of, you know, change. And it's going to respond to things like the doom that came to Kickstarter um, imploding. And it's going to respond to things like Veronica Mars exploding. And whether the actual effect on our business is better or worse because of either one of those things is going to be an interesting question. Uh, again, you know, the uh, <laughs> Steve Jackson has been fairly forthright in saying that if he produced the ogre game that he promised at $100 for a rational amount of money, it would sell for $400. So, you know, and this is Steve Jackson, who is no slouch at knowing how much games cost. And for him to miss a, a an estimate by 75%, should send toxins of fear down the, the sh down the spines of every game publisher and every game designer, much less whether or not some goof who has already uh, blotted his copybook in video games manages to wreck uh, a board game. Yeah, I, I think that's that's absolutely the the case that we're going to need to uh, track uh, the Kickstarter history as it continues to unfold, and that uh, this is definitely something that has got all of us. Uh, sitting up and paying attention. It's not necessarily the uh, harbinger of doom that some might fear, but I think it's definitely something that you have to take into account when assessing sort of the emotional temperature of where the movement is at. And, you know, if things return to a uh, more rational grounding, and frankly, if uh, people who know what they're doing become you know, represented as a higher percentage of people who are launching their campaigns, I think that will be ultimately for the good, at least, of people who want to get stuff for their money, if not for the good of the uh, scrappy young kid who wants to come around from nowhere with a, a great idea and a dream. Mm -hmm. And I think that brings us to the end of uh, that topic. So we've finished talking about crowdfunding, and uh, let's uh, head on to another topic in which we will talk about crowdfunding. So the staring eyes of the alien big cat looking at us through the window and the portrait of Charles Fort on the wall tell us that we've once more entered the boundaries of the Elliptony Hut, in which we talk about the uncategorizably uh, weird and strange. And in this case, we thought that we would uh, look at the career of Nikolai Tesla and specifically what might be found under the grounds of the Tesla Museum, which was, wait for it, recently crowdfunded by an Indiegogo campaign. So, uh, Ken, can you maybe start? Uh, Tesla, of course, is a uh, well-known to fans of Elliptony. It's always been sort of the uh, loopy Orson Welles character that of uh, electricity and inventing, in contrast to the uh, stodgy, uh, forbidding uh, Thomas Edison. He's always been better represented in pop culture, perhaps because uh, 
there is still the memory of the way that Thomas Edison tried to strangle Hollywood in its cradle. Uh, mm -hmm. So, uh, assuming that you uh, just know that uh, Nikolai Tesla was a cool guy played by David Bowie in a movie about magicians, uh, what do you really need to know about him? Well, the first thing you really need to know about Nikola Tesla is that he invented AC power. And if you don't think that's a big deal, try and go, you know, an hour in your life without using something that is plugged into a wall. Uh, if, if you are not charging your computer and your um, uh, refrigerator off of a generator a mile from your house, then you are owing your entire 20th century comfort and existence to Nikola Tesla. Also, he invented radio. You know, no big. He just did. Um, he invented a lot of other stuff, some of it crazy and some of it not so crazy. Uh, medical diathermy, the, the, the theory that you um, can soothe uh, muscles with radiant heat and, um, uh, and, and focused waves. To an extent, lithotripsy basically comes out of something that Tesla thought up. He never built a lithotriptor because the technology wasn't there, but he basically pointed the direction. And I'm pretty sure that the guy who invented the lithotriptor was looking at uh, diathermy and looking at the other sort of um, effect on a distance stuff that, that Tesla was doing with medical work and said, well, I think I can probably burn up a kidney stone from a distance with my uh, super uh, radio waves. And indeed, that's because of Tesla. So lots and lots and lots of stuff that Tesla did was awesome and was fundamental. And he is one of the great American inventors. And I'm not one of those guys that, that holds out a lot of hate for Thomas Edison, but he was kind of a jerk to Tesla. Um, he, he tried to, to rip him off. Uh, for the design of the AC motor, and there was many, many other uh, uh, elements in their in their well-known war of the uh, of the engineers that uh, culminated in Tesla getting to invent AC power and Westinghouse George Westinghouse being able to put AC power in every house in America. But it also culminated with Tesla toppling over into really, really being crazy. Which is the other thing that we know about Tesla is that he was a visionary and a genius. He famously came up with the AC motor by seeing it fully working in 3D in front of it, hovering in front of his face when he was still living in uh, Serbia. And so when he moved to London to take over Edison's uh, works in London, he already had the design sort of floating in his head. That's not the way normal people build stuff. That's the way transcendent geniuses build stuff. Now, that wasn't a hologram you were projecting from your time machine, was it? It may or may not have been a hologram that I was projecting from my time machine. But uh, if so, I may have had the gain set a little high because he also had, for example, a morbid fear of spheres. And he liked to talk to pigeons. And he believed that he was talking to Martians with his radio. And he had a lot of other exciting and, uh, and dangerous beliefs. And as he got crazier and crazier and ran through more and more of the investment money that was poured into his projects by George Westinghouse and other millionaires, uh, J.P. Morgan among them, he spent a great amount of his time trying to build a system of broadcast power, where he would build a power station, and the specific power station that he built was in Wardenclyffe, Long Island, uh, Shor and Shoreham is the town, and he built a giant tower that was going to basically set up a standing wave in the ionosphere that you would then be able to tap using a radio wave to get your power. So it would basically be as if all of your power were beamed down from the sky. Now, one of the things that caused J.P. Morgan and... George Westinghouse to stop funding him is because they asked the perfectly sound question, how do we, how do we, um, uh, how do we bill for that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, then they asked the question, have you ever actually done anything like that? And Tesla was able to say, well, in Telluride, Colorado, I was able to turn on all the light bulbs in town by setting off a multi-million volt charge from my laboratory. And I think that at this point, Westinghouse and Morgan said, have you ever done that? 
on purpose, and I think that that is what he tried <laughs> to do in Wardenclyffe. A, a niggling concern. Yes, they're these guys, and so he um uh, he he decided to um to to build a sort of proof of concept tower out in uh, Long Island, um using a, a bunch of money uh, from uh, J P Morgan from Westinghouse. Stanford White built his um uh, his his laboratory for him, which is uh, Stanford White is probably the, sort of the the, the 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 Frank Gehry of the turn of the century. Only his stuff is going to be still pretty in two hundred years. Um, the uh, so so it it was big, you know, society news. And then there was a series of financial reversals and Tesla being crazy and other stuff that eventually the funding dried up and uh, Tesla's laboratory had to be abandoned. And so the uh, end result is that Tesla moves into an apartment in I think it's New Jersey somewhere. I think it's it's Newark. Um, or maybe it's, it's New York City, but it's somewhere in the, in the tri-state area and talks to pigeons and goes crazy and writes about death rays and doesn't do an awful lot of really useful science, except to produce a lot of loose ends for conspiracy theorists to tug on. Right, because he's got that free energy thing going for him, which of Absolutely. course is a huge motif in conspiracy theory because it's the, the fact that energy costs money is what it has the current order keeping us down. So mm -hmm. there will be a new utopia possible if we can just unlock uh, the pill that turns water into gasoline, or in this case, if we can build Tesla's uh, energy towers and uh, all just freely access uh, energy with no environmental consequences. So that's mm -hmm. a, a lovely thing to uh, dream about and a, a lovely thing to assume that the forces that you're paranoid about are depriving you of. Um, and so uh, Tesla ran out of funding himself, but in uh, May, Matthew Inman, the cartoonist behind the oatmeal, announced that he had successfully uh, completed uh, enough of his Indiegogo campaign to purchase Tesla's former laboratory in Long Island, New York. It will still need uh, more money in order to turn it into a museum. That was just the funding to purchase the land, and there's some sort of suggestion in the story that there might be something exciting and fascinating buried uh, under the grounds of the museum. So if we're going to uh, perhaps let our imaginations uh, flow free and search for uh, plot hooks rather than historical likelihoods, what do you think might be found under the grounds of uh, Tesla's last laboratory? Well, I think that first of all, you have to decide, do you want the heroes who find the thing under the ground. Is this, what kind of game is this? If it's a game of pulp adventure, what you find is, you know, they, they pull the big knife switch and the, and the big bank of lights come on and there's a hum and there's all of the awesome Tesla machines that are laid out there. There's his death ray. There's his device for talking to Mars. There's his teleporter gun. There's his thing that you rub over your arm and it cures your cancer. There's all the stuff that he built is down there in, in his sub-basement like a sort of Doc Savage's arsenal. And you're uh, able to use that to go out and fight uh, crime and the man and the man's crime and all of the other stuff that one fights in a, in a proper uh, postmodern pulp game. Now, if it's a horror game, what's down there in the basement is whatever that was out in outer space that Tesla was talking to. It's whatever did get woke up when he kept unleashing multi-billion voltaic currents up into the ionosphere. Did he bring down a genie from the Heaviside layer? Did he talk to uh, the things that the harp uh, in Alaska that we've talked about previously have been fighting and keeping us off? Is, is it uh, connected somehow to the Montauk time machine that uh, beautifully crazy conspiracy theorist Peter Moon believes uh, was built? Is it a gateway to 1943 opened up by the Philadelphia experiment? There's all kinds of stuff 
uh, because Tesla is, as you mentioned, sort of a universal joint for crazy conspiracy theories, there's all kinds of stuff that could be in Tesla's basement. And in fact, if you want to structure an entire uh, weird science campaign around this idea, you could have each of the inventions be the investigation of the week so that you've got a bunch of pieces and uh, you've got the secondary characters, the GM-controlled characters, slowly putting them back together. And then once they have the device of unknown utility assembled, your guys are the guys who push the button and then deal with the consequences. Right. Yeah, you can you can do it as as that sort of um, like the uh, TV show Warehouse 13, except that you begin with the artifact and don't have to hunt it down. Or you could do it as a uh, sort of a TARDIS thing where you put together the thing and you walk out and somehow the Earth has been subtly changed and you need to use the machine to stop that. Or if uh, what's down there is a transdimensional gateway, you go out to the surface of the planet Venus, where Tesla was also uh, busily contacting folk, according to later Tesla writers. I don't think Tesla ever claimed to talk to Venus, but... He was too busy talking to Mars. Yeah, well, Mars is uh, apparently more interesting, uh, which is another thing that Tesla had that was uh, his his inability to sort of get along with the ladies in the way that might have uh, settled him down a bit. So the uh, Tesla's communication with Venus is something that one of Tesla's biographers has mentioned in a less than critical uh, tone of voice, and the notion that uh, higher energy beings from Venus, the sort of theosophical uh, elder race that is uh, guiding us, Tesla is a major contactee for them. So this could be your your good angels versus bad devils type uh, thing, or there could be some uh, cosmic component that is um, opening up these doors for mankind, and it's up to your bold player character to decide, is it really worth walking through those, or is there a reason that Nikola Tesla shut all that stuff up in his basement and then uh, never uh, came back to it? And for specifically Cthulhu purposes... Lovecraft's uh, story about Yarlathotep, or his prose poem, or whatever it is, doesn't it uh, describe him as touring around with what are essentially uh, Tesla coils? Yeah, the uh, Will Murray uh, believes that the, um, the, the the electrical showman Yarlathotep is a mank on Nikola Tesla, who would tour around with uh, Tesla coils and with basically big uh, Van de Graaff generators and other things, and so he would... Uh, touch the coils and be full of electricity and shoot lightning bolts around on the stage and do sort of electrical illusions. Um, I think that Will Murray is engaged in, well, he's a pulp writer, so he wants to drag Tesla into everything. I, there are plenty of people who would go around and do stereopticon shows and slideshows and panoramas and do other sorts of magic lantern shows, basically, in Lovecraft's time. Uh, you don't need to bring Tesla into it, but but that if we do that, uh, then you can have a campaign in which you know that Tesla was really just an avatar of Neuralathotep or was taken right. over by him at one point, and that you know that there's this stuff down in the basement that this idealistic cartoonist has uh, crowdfunded his way into, and here your job is to prevent anybody from assembling all of that stuff because, of course, it is all of the components for the end of the world, which uh, he has conveniently buried, waiting for someone to come along when the stars are right and assemble them. Right, and the um, uh, and, and and therefore the uh, the the possibility that uh, you know if if you uh, you can turn it around where you are the guys who uncover the, the the Tesla basement, and it is in the course of using those gear that you determine. Oh my gosh, I think Tesla might have been near Lathotep. On the Lovecraft contact, we can also talk about. Uh, Behind the Wall of Sleep, in which a alien being from the stars talks to 
a mad scientist using a mental radio, which sounds very Tesla-y to me. And I think that actually, if you're looking for Tesla influence on Lovecraft, Beyond the Wall of Sleep is another one, and it's a slightly less familiar story, so it might have that as a bonus for use in play. And you have bad uh, star aliens from Algol and good star aliens that uh, are still fairly horrible star aliens, given that they burn out a human brain to talk to the mad scientist. So I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of depth in there if you go back to the things that um, that are happening in, in Tesla's life, uh, the Philadelphia experiment being one of them, uh, the uh, communications with Mars that Percival Lowell has and that Nikola Tesla has, another one. People say that Tesla's testing uh, at Wardenclyffe caused the Tunguska blast, which is another possible uh, connection for people if they want to draw in the secret Russian uh, high-tech uh, uh, SVR or FSB successor people who are using the scalar tech they took from the Nazi uh, laboratories in Poland uh, and are trying to keep their monopoly on it. But it, it adds, a, I think, a fun variant on the man from it always being standard oil all the time. So I think that we've uh, established that uh, there are all manner of things that could be under that museum, so that if after the ribbon-cutting ceremony the world ends shortly afterwards, don't say that we didn't podcast about it. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Fire up your electrified coils at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.